Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf, recording in my home office with potential special guest appearances from my cat chicken or the wild parrots next door. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film, perhaps one that influenced their own work in some small way. Today, I'm very excited to have writer, director, actor, Zoe Lister-Jones. Hi, Zoe. Hi. Um, so, for people who need a refresher on Zoe's career, I'm about to give you one. Zoe grew up in Brooklyn, New York. As the only child of two artists, she was exposed to the art scene at an early age, eventually leading her to the NYU Tisch School of the Arts and the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London. On stage, she starred opposite Jeff Goldblum in Seminar on Broadway and opposite Johnny Galecki in The Little Dog Laughed, a role which she originated at New York Second Stage Theater. Her off-Broadway credits include The Marriage of Betty and Boo, The Accomplices, and her one-woman show Codependence is a Four-Letter Word, which she produced, wrote, and starred in, and was a New York Times critic's pick. You might also remember her in New Girl Friends with Better Lives, Whitney, The Good Wife, The Class, Bored to Death, and Kidnapped, or from the film's Confirmation, The Other Guys, Salt, State of Play, Shadows and Lies, Stuck Between Stations, Armless, and Life in Pieces, opposite Colin Hanks, which ran for four seasons. In 2012, she produced and starred in Lola Versus opposite Greta Gerwig. Then in 2015, she co-wrote the film Consumed. But it was in 2017, she finally made her directorial debut with Band-Aid, which she wrote, produced, and starred in opposite Adam Pally. Now she's releasing her sophomore film as writer and director, the craft and producer, I believe, correct? Yeah, executive producer. Executive producer. <laughs> the Craft Oops. Legacy, a continuation of the cult hit The Craft, about an eclectic foursome of aspiring teenage witches who get more than they bargained for as they lean into their newfound powers. Uh, the film stars Kaylee Spaney, Gideon Adlin, Lovey Simone, Zoe Luna, Michelle Monaghan, and David Duchovny. And listeners will remember Zoe Luna's appearance earlier in the year on our podcast talking about Underwater. Um, so, Zoe, the movie that you chose to talk about today is The Babadook. Um, and we've had a lot of people kind of reference it. No one's chosen it. Jennifer Kent came on and talked about The Innocence and some other things, but no one's chosen The Babadook. And I had to check even the list to make sure. I was like, oh, that's right. No one has chosen it. <laughs> so thank you. And yeah. can you give us a little explanation on why it's one of your fave genre films? Well, I guess my favorite genre films, you know, play with allegory, which is what's so exciting about genre films in, in general. But I think The Babadook um, is just such a, profound portrait of grief. Um, and that grief is then channeled through, um, you know, this sort of haunting specter that, that uh, drives the protagonist, you know, sort of mentally ill and, and, mm -hmm. and what it means to, to really face those specters in your lives and, and no spoilers, but I think just the way the, the film ends even, um, you know, well, I suppose you spoil it anyway, right? Oh, I'm gonna. I'm about, about to give my disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, just just the. I think the message of that film of 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 any of our demons that um, that sort of haunt us incessantly that that our work is to actually um, not run from them and and to actually in some ways like make peace with them and mm -hmm. and sit down with them, which is sort of a Buddhist <laughs> ideology. So, um, and then, and then on top of, of that, just the filmmaking is so exquisite and the performances are, are so stellar. Um, it's, it's really just a perfect film. 
Yeah, I would have to say probably your career as an actor makes you very appreciative of what S.E. Davis was doing, which we are going to get into in this podcast. Um, But for those of you who haven't seen The Babadook, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you'd like to pause and watch The Babadook first, this is your shot. And now that you're back, let me introduce The Babadook with a quick synopsis to uh, jog your memory. Written and directed by Jennifer Kent for release in 2014, The Babadook stars Essie Davis as Amelia, a young widow bringing up a six-year-old boy named Sam on her own. We find that Amelia's husband died in a car accident while bringing her to the hospital for Sam's birth. My dad's in the cemetery. He got killed driving mom to the hospital to have me. Amelia works as a nurse and has trouble controlling Sam's new outbursts. He believes that an imaginary monster is after him and crafts some makeshift weapons to protect him and his mother. Those weapons get found at his school, and Amelia has to go in and be berated by the administration for her son's behavior. I'll have a talk with him. I'll have a serious talk with him. Mrs. Vanny, the boy has significant behavioral problems. You know, Samuel doesn't need a full-time monitor. What he needs is some understanding. I have 24 other first graders in that class. Do you want me to put them all at risk because of your son? I think I'll just find another school. At night, Amelia begins reading a book called Mr. Babadook to Sam and is confused about where it came from exactly. It's the story of a shadowy figure who will never leave its victims alone once they know he's there. This is what he wears on top. He's funny, don't you think? See him in your room at night. Mom, does it hurt the boy? Mom, does it live under the bed? Sam thinks it's real, and Amelia has some sleepless nights dealing with him. But strange things are happening around the house, too. Doors slam, glass shows up in her food. It's gotta be Sam, right? The Babadook did it, Mom! But Sam says it's the Babadook, which only grates on Amelia's nerves. She rips up the book and throws it away. Sam and Amelia go to Amelia's sister's place for a birthday party, but then Sam acts out and breaks his cousin's nose. And Amelia's sister says, Because I can't stand being around your son. Amelia's pissed, but underneath it, she also can't stand him either. On the way home, Sam sees the Babadook in the back seat and freaks out, then has a seizure. Then that damn book shows up on her doorstep, totally intact, with new pages that show Amelia killing her dog and Sam, and the message that if she denies the Babadook exists, it'll only get stronger. Amelia freaks, goes to the police, but sees the Babadook's coat and shit hanging there and returns home, where she shuts herself in with Sam. That's when she really loses it. She cuts the phone line, threatens Sam with a knife. I said the Babadook. The Babadook isn't real, Samuel. It's just something you've made up in your stupid little head. I just didn't want you to let it in. I'll make sure nothing gets in tonight. All right, Samuel? Nothing is coming in here tonight. Nothing! And hallucinates she's killed him before becoming possessed by by the Babadook and killing the dog. Sam tricks her into the basement and ties her up. She tries to kill him and he comforts her as she expels a black tar from her body. But that's not the end. The Babadook gets Sam and Amelia saves him. If you touch my son again, I'll fucking kill you! But she's forced to relive the trauma of losing her husband. She has confronted it, and the Babadook, which uh, weakens it enough to be locked in the basement, where the small family learns to live with it and incorporate it into their slightly sunnier lives. How was it? It's quiet today. Not happy, but slightly sunnier. <laughs> that's the end. Um, I I wanted to get into something that um, 
I feel like might resonate with you. Um, Jennifer Kent, when she was creating this movie, and she she was in the development process for a fairly long time. Um, and she was much more interested in focusing on the dramatic side of it first. Um, she's a huge horror fan, huge horror buff, but it was really important for her to kind of get the, the family drama correct um, first. So she said, quote, I understand that The Babadook is being sold as a horror film. Films need to be sold throughout the world and they need to reach an appropriate audience. But for me, I never approached this as a straight horror film. I always was drawn to the idea of grief and the suppression of that grief and the question of, how would that affect a person? I like stories that are heightened and have a mythical quality, which is why I didn't just keep it in the psychological realm. It skips over into this other realm of supernatural mythology, but at the core of it, it's about the mother and child and their relationship, end quote. Yes. <laughs> uh, agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I approached, I, I, this is my first time directing a genre film or writing a genre film, and so, um, the only way I, I really ever know how to approach writing something is is if I have a personal entry point to mm -hmm. it, um, and and that that whatever sort of plot twists or um, elements that I know I have to hit um, sort of come second to the characters that I'm rooting um, the narrative in, and and so for me, like uh, sort of similar to what Jennifer Kent was saying, this this was. Um, First and foremost, a story about a mother and a daughter. Um, and I drew upon my own uh, adolescence in, in being raised by my mom uh, solo in high school and, mm -hmm. and having to, um, you know, come into contact with men that she dated and, and ultimately moving in with, with one of those men and, and the ways that that impacted me and, and the fear and... Um, and anxiety that was produced, you know, in those mm -hmm. situations and the ways that it ultimately, you know, for a moment did unravel my relationship with my mother. So, um, so yeah, that, that's really like how I started figuring out what this movie was when I was given the task to, to yeah. reimagine it. Yeah. I mean, that's the, when you're drawing that out, um, those kind of personal things, do you do you ever kind of look elsewhere in the world? Because um, one of the things I thought was really interesting was the fact that Jennifer Kent was using the basis of um, her friend having a son who was obsessed with this monster was haunting him. And she was like, oh, no, what if that's real? But then she also read this news story and she kind of combined it. And the news story was pretty um, frightening for her, but it really kind of took her on uh, a more a different direction that made her a little bit more horrific. She said, quote, I remember when I was writing The Babadook, there was a case in Australia where a man was stuck in traffic on a very high bridge with his five-year-old daughter. He got out of the car, grabbed his daughter and threw her off of this high bridge and she died. Obviously, it's a horrific story, but something in me felt for that man. What pushed him to that point? Because he's human, just like you or me. What made him a monster in that moment? That's what I wanted to explore and discover with the Babadook, end quote. And so this kind of like constant questioning of stories of just like putting yourself into this place of like, what if, how would I feel? How could I get to that place? Um, mm -hmm. Do you ever find inspiration um, in, in those types of things that you read? Like as you're, I mean, as an actor, you're probably probing those things pretty constantly. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think... Um as an actor, as a writer, as a director, I, I'm always, I'm a very porous person in general, sometimes too porous. Um, so <laughs> I do, I am, I am constantly sort of taking in, um, stories 
often unconsciously, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, and then sometimes they'll come up and surprise me and be like, where did I, where did I hear about that? You know, or like, did someone tell me that? But they just sort of live and percolate in me. Um, And I think in, in this film, I, you know, had been really interested slash terrified by men's rights activists. Mm -hmm. Um, And before I started writing it was sort of doing these deep dives around some pretty prominent figures in the contemporary MRA scene. And, um, and I think, so I, I definitely had to like enter into (laughs) those people's heads (laughs) a little bit more than I, uh, was comfortable with at times. Yeah. Just like, Um, wait, am I into this? (laughs) Do I want to have an all beef diet? uh... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, I mean, I think that is part of the um, beauty of of creating stories is that um, you get to infuse the personal with um, with the collective consciousness in some ways Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, get to enter into worlds that you um, have never entered before. Um, And I think with genre filmmaking, I mean, for me, too, it was such an exciting opportunity to really allow my imagination to run wild as a writer and director. I had only worked in, um, in the indie world. And as a writer, I had, you know, even though I, I co-wrote Lola Versus, which was a Fox Searchlight film, you know, I was never, it was always like in a very grounded universe that was about a certain amount of resources that we were allowed to play with. And, um, and I still, you know, still we had parameters in terms of resources on this, but, um, but just to be able to work with VFX in a way that was like, what if you know what what could you dream up that is beyond your wildest imagination when it comes to magic? It was such a an incredible gift. We're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more of the Babadook um, and a lot of the craft and Band Aid and a lot of your other works. We'll be right back. The Beef and Dairy Network is a multi-award-winning comedy podcast here on Maximum Fun, and I would recommend you listen to it. But don't just take it from me. What do the listeners have to say? Would I recommend Beef and Dairy Network podcast? Um, no, I don't think I would. Right, let me be very clear about this. Under no circumstances would I recommend this to anyone I've ever met. No, absolutely not. No, I couldn't. I feel quite sick thinking about the things I've heard. Please stop calling me. Please leave me alone. That's the Beef and Dairy Network podcast available at MaximumFun.org and at all good and some bad podcast platforms. Literally, just leave me alone. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Zoe Lister-Jones and we're talking about The Babadook. I am... I wanted to talk about the fact that uh, in The Babadook, you've got Essie Davis, who is an extremely trained actor, but she's with a novice, a six-year-old, who has to kind of hold his own in these scenes with her. And um, for Jennifer Kent, it was very gratifying, but also so difficult. She said, quote, 
I've said before that trying to direct any six-year-old is like trying to get an incredibly drunk person to perform in a straight line. It's not an easy task. It was very hard. I won't lie about that, especially compared to Essie, who's a trained actor with 20 years of experience. But it was also an absolute joy. The thing about Noah is that he's a very lovable little kid. We auditioned quite a few kids who were very good, but I think they would have erred on the side of being really super annoying. A lot of that empathy is due to Noah. He's a strong actor, end quote. And, you know... Working with less experienced actors, I'm sure can be difficult, but also more gratifying in a different way if you're able to help kind of craft that performance. Yes, I am an actor, so I can say actors are difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but um, but, you know, the the task that they have to uh, undertake is is really so great. And um, and there are so many elements that are continuously getting in their way, you know? So it is, it is really Herculean, uh, what, what actors have to do to craft these performances, um, on days when, you know, everything is going wrong and we're moving a mile a minute and there's Mm -hmm. not time to do another take. And, um, I think because I am an actor, I do approach, um, the way I direct actors sort of specifically, um, because I know what, what works for me and what doesn't. And such a huge part of a director's job is, is to be able to communicate their vision with their actors. So, um, you know, I was so lucky on this film. I, all of these actors are just really phenomenal. And, um, and the young women that I cast as the coven, um, just brought so much of themselves and, um, and their own stories and their own relationship to spirituality to these characters, um, there were a lot of art meets life, life meet art meets art moments, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think what was really exciting about directing young women who were playing uh, characters that were like entering into a new friendship was that I was watching that happen in real time. And so a, a lot of, um, you know, a director's job too is to capitalize on, on what every actor is bringing to that scene that day in that moment from their real life and to create an environment that um, that supports that. I want to talk about a little bit more with the acting and performance and the the sense that a and especially women um, that they need to feel comfortable being monsters on screen and to be comfortable feeling bad or sometimes unlikable. Um, because, you know, if you think about this in terms of Essie Davis and her performance, I, I feel like she's kind of like the epitome of that, you know, feminine monstrous that we're talking about that, that you don't often get to see. Um, but Jennifer Kent said, quote, she's extraordinary, a very underrated performer. I used to be an actress and I went to acting school with her and I'm just amazed by her talent. She dis- disappears into any work that she does. She's someone who can really travel around going from somebody who's really suppressed and timid and a bit of a doormat into somebody who's sort of monstrous. A lot of women are not prepared to be that ugly or threatening. She's incredibly brave, and I owe a lot of the film to her and her courage, end quote. Um, I am curious if you've gotten the chance to be as monstrous as you've wanted uh, to be. No, I've never gotten to be monstrous. Um you know, in my work in television, I've, I've really, uh, made my livelihood in comedy (laughs) as an actor. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have played a lot of sort of, um, 
dry-witted and acerbic women. <laughs> so um, sort of casual monsters, <laughs> but, but never, um, never slaying anybody, uh, so to speak, except for with like uh, a side eye. Um, and I think, you know, in the original craft, Fruza Balk was the ultimate villainous, you know, and, and I loved how deliciously evil she was and she got to be in that in that film and I think that's what makes her performance so iconic and it's not dissimilar to Essie Davis although she took on an even crazier um challenge which is you know a mother who's monstrous to her son which is so Mm -hmm. revolutionary to put on screen I think um and still be rooting for that for that woman and and empathizing with that woman but um yeah that's a it's a testament to her performance and to Jennifer Kent's direction would you want to be monstrous? Yeah, man, of course. The greatest dream. <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> um, did you, you know, your the girls that you have in the movie, these young women, they probably needed some support in terms of like being able to show up on screen and be uh, flawed characters at times and be, you know, um, you know, imperfect. And did they feel comfortable? Did you have to do any kind of protecting in relation to that or protecting even, I would say, of, you know, uh, David Duchovny, these uh, other seasoned actors who still need protection? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think actors need a lot of protection. I mean, I think what's interesting that uh, they could never teach you in film school uh, about directing is that, you know, you really are you are, you are so delicately caring for so many people (laughs) um, who are in hypersensitive spaces emotionally. And that's not just the actors, that's the crew members too. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I think because everything feels so high stakes all the time when you're shooting um, and everyone feels they have something so personal on the line. um, Yeah. There's a lot of like comfort that uh that needs to be <laughs> expressed and given constantly um and uh and i i think you know i do hire a lot of women um as my department heads and i think that they do also provide comfort because i think mm-hmm. um you know there is sort of a maternal quality that uh that is intrinsic uh whether or not you want to have children which you know i they think there's just a, a sort of nurturing um that i that i like to or just openness on a set the the like, yeah. there's always that that kind of joke where people who want to vent will go to the makeup trailer because yeah. like you know that you could find potentially a woman there or just someone who wanted to listen and like that that was you know kind of for a long time a little bit of the 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 joke there but if you've got yeah. like the entire department is kind of just open and <laughs> wanting to talk through things and you know i think maybe it makes a different uh, potentially different atmosphere yeah definitely i mean and energy on a set is so contagious and i I think it, if if there is one toxic person, uh, it can really take a whole film down. Um, and so it really is. You on speak the from experience, and I want to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it, you know, it is on the director's shoulders to make sure that that um, that the energy is conducive to creation across all you know departments mm-hmm. and and in front of the camera for sure. 
I mean, and, you know, uh, for Jennifer Ken, I wanted to mention, she said, quote, it was my job to take care of Essie and make sure that she didn't look foolish and make sure that she could be as brave and horrible as that woman is at times. But, end quote, I love the idea that that um, she's thinking of her job is to like make sure that she gives the support to this actor where she can go, you know, expand in many directions, but not look foolish to be like, mm-hmm. trust me to present you as um, a is serious, you know, as a dramatic yes. actor. Uh, yeah, I mean, you have to earn every single person's trust on a set as a director, or you're fucked. <laughs> um, and and that is, it, it's a it's a great responsibility um, because, especially at the beginning of a film, a misstep can really shift a dynamic um, in a way that 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 could harm the product, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, I think actors especially really have to put their trust in you. And I take those relationships very seriously, but I take my relationships with my, with my crew just as seriously. Um, and I think with Kaylee Spaney, who uh, is the star of the film, she had to go to uh, just so many deep emotional places. Um, and so, you know, we would, she would come to my house every weekend um, in Toronto where we were shooting and we'd, I would act opposite her in every scene we were going to shoot that that upcoming week. And mm-hmm. we would talk through all of the emotional beats and sort of work through them in real time uh, as actors. It was kind of like little like mini mini um, acting class, like not that she needed an acting class, but it was like because we were doing scene work together, yeah. essentially, as, as two actors. Um And even on set, I, I would, you know, jump in and just kind of get in there and uh you know, weep with her sometimes, <laughs> um, just because, um, because I, 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 I am sort of inside each of these characters as well as the writer, um, inside their psyches in, in a sort of a deep way. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious about something that, um, a kind of trick that Jennifer Kent has for directing. I wonder if you ever use this, that where she does um, a kind of simplifying the story to to direct a p- particular character. In this case, she was using it um, to direct uh, the child who played Sam um, because she didn't want to give all of the information because it's just too horrific and cruel to tell mm-hmm. this young child. Mm-hmm. But she said, quote, during the reverse shots where Amelia was abusing Sam verbally, we had Essie yell at an adult stand-in on his knees. I didn't want to destroy a childhood to make this film. That wouldn't be fair. And when I talked to him, I said, basically, Sam is trying to save his mother and it's a film about the power of love, end quote. And just being like, this is all you need to know. Deliver this line and that's it. Like, have you, I mean, has has it ever, has anyone ever given you that direction? Have you given anyone else that direction of just being like, you're overthinking the scene. This is what it is. Well, I think actors overthink scenes all the time. So um, (laughs) part I think, you know, part of part of our job as a director is to um, is to get an actor out of their own way. And um, and whatever information you're choosing to give them, I think different actors need very different things. And that is also a director's job is to cater the information they're giving to each actor um, according to their needs. And I think directors who who I have, you know, not benefited from uh, their direction often have a sort of like, this is my approach and it's uh, one for all. And it's just like, I as an actor um, tend to to like um, pretty hands-off directors. I like, mm-hmm. you know, I like space to to explore. And then, and then I like direction that's very specific and active. Yeah. Um, and so 
And I think a lot of actors like that, but then certain actors need more. They need a lot more information. They want to talk about backstory and they want to talk about, you know, what, what day was my character born on? And, you know, Zoe Luna, who played Lourdes, was doing, um, you know, astrological charts for all of the characters. So, so everyone had their, their own like rising <laughs> signs. And, um, and it really is, it, it's, it's so much about what each person needs in order to, to dig in. And, and, you know, all these young women had to be, had to dig into very emotional spaces um, in the film. And each one of their processes was so different in getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it is about, respecting those processes and and, and holding space for them however much you can. Um, We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll talk a lot more of the Babadook and uh, the craft legacy. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Zoe Lister-Jones, and we're talking about The Babadook. Um, so Jennifer Ken, as I said before, she was an, an actor, and she studied um, acting, and she did not go to traditional film school. This was her first feature. Um, but she did have her own self-made film school that I wanted to discuss and uh, see if you resonate with some of this. Um, she said, quote, it was around 2001 when uh, <laughs> Lars von Trier was doing Dogville in Sweden. Uh, I just sent him an email, nothing businessy, just a very earnest note in which I confessed I'd rather stick pins in my eyes than go to film school and asked him if I could come and watch him work. He doesn't normally let people on set, but I got a reply from their assistant telling me that I could come for one day. But they were clear I couldn't just stand around doing nothing. I had to work. So I flew to Sweden and I saw the producer and I was allowed to stay on. I ended up doing a lot of shit kicking jobs in the directing department, but I didn't mind. I just wanted to watch a great director at work to see how he does it. The biggest thing I learned from him was courage. He's stubborn and he does what he wants. I needed to see those things up close and also to see that he was a human being, not some god. It was the best film school I could have ever had, end quote. That's amazing. I didn't know that story. Yeah, it's fantastic, right? She just emailed him, like, cold email and just like, hello, sir, I would like to work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't. I didn't go to um, to film school either. I went to drama school. Mm-hmm. I started by um, well, I, I wrote one one screenplay out of drama school. But before that, you had mentioned this one woman show I did when when I was in drama school. I had this uh, teacher who told me I should write a one woman show, um, and I upon graduating did, and that's how I got my first agent and manager. And so I think um, you know, as a writer, that was sort of my my first foray into writing things that I could perform myself. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then my now husband and I, Daryl wine, um, we wrote a film called breaking upwards together, uh, that was loosely based on an open relationship that we were in that we made for $15,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just got all of 
you know, the people that I was, I was doing a lot of theater at the time as an actor. And, and I just asked like everyone that I'd ever worked with in theater, if they would come, you know, be in this movie. Um, and it was, we, we got like a couple people off Craigslist and it was really just, just me and Daryl and our DP and various, like we would ask like a friend to hold the boom. And, mm-hmm. um, I was doing, you know, craft services in quotation marks, just like (laughs) buying, buying like bags of chips for people at the (laughs) bodega. Um, and that was such that, that was really my film school. Um, because it, it was, uh, really camp, especially in terms of making a micro budget film, but, but in any film, I think even as the scope of the film grows, you know, you're still having to be really scrappy in Mm -hmm. terms of how you get a film made and how you can make it within a certain budget. And, um, and, and that film opened up so many doors, doors for us as, as filmmakers. And, um, and then that's when we, we got to go on to, to make Lola Verses with Fox Searchlight, um, which we wrote and produced together as well. So, um, you know, I think that, like we, we went, we made that and we made a number of other films. So leading up to my directorial debut, I, I had had an, a lot of experience as a writer, producer, and actor in films that I was, um, you know, so involved with from start to finish, mm-hmm. including being in the editing room every day. And so I felt that, um, once I, I got into the directing my, myself, um, you know, I did feel prepared, um, from from just being on that many sets and and having to get so many films off the ground which is uh an impossible task every time oh yeah and i like what i like what jennifer ken is saying too about realizing that a director is not a god especially one you know directors that we revere that we you know that they become quote-unquote masters the fact is that they're Mm -hmm. still just artists making choices they're making mm-hmm. a series of choices every single time and they're human. And it, I think it kind of lowers the entry point for people to feel like they can get to that point. You know, like you're not born a director. You can become a director. Yeah. And I think for women in particular, we are um, such perfectionists, right? Like we, we, especially in industries where, where there are so many barriers to entry, I think um, we want to make sure that we're going to like really deserve our spot and that, that, that we, that we won't make any mistakes and that we have to know everything before we show up. And, um, and I think that speaks to, to Jennifer Kent's point is, is that, um, every director is making mistakes, you know, and there's no director that isn't learning something new mm-hmm. on each project. And I think the craft legacy is a perfect example of that for me. Like, I, there were so many things that I didn't know going into making this film that I learned beforehand or during the making of it um, that I'm so grateful to now know. But, um, but I did have to sort of get out of my own way in terms of um, giving myself that, that sort of confidence um, that I could and that, and that it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to ask questions. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to have every answer. Yeah. I mean, that's the joy of having a, a team and it being a collaborative art. Um, yeah. Having that vision and helping, having other people help you fulfill it. Um, I want to go back to something that you said before about the fact that you like, you made something with your husband and, and had to just like pull so many favors 
and, you know, didn't have much money. And because this film, even though um, The Babadook had about a $2 million budget, they were still kind of strapped for things with like the ambition that Jennifer Kent had. Um, And so the guy who played The Babadook, they were going to like hire an actor. And then they were just like, why don't we get the guy from the art department? So The Babadook is actually played by Tim Purcell, who was from the (laughs) art department. And he was being a cost saver. Um, He said, quote, they realized they could save some money and have me just be the Babadook. And hence I became the Babadook. I had a big jacket and the hat and I actually had to make this mouth prosthetic to have this huge open mouth look. And you've got the contact lenses on and crap all over your teeth. You do look fairly, fairly horrifying. You could definitely feel scary, end quote. Um, And because he was in the art department, he actually he made his own mouth. You know, like that was his job was like doing that. So, you know, you try to find these kind of uh, jack of all trades in a sense of just like, can you do this? Mm -hmm. Can you also do this? Yeah. I mean, I I, on Band-Aid, I made an announcement on the first day of shooting. Um, We shot Band-Aid in 12 days and um, there were definitely not enough bodies on set to be doing the amount of work we needed to get done. Mm -hmm. And and I just said, you know, even if, if it's not in your department, I think like, see, see who you can be helping at any moment, um, because we are all in this together and, um, and, you know, see if you can anticipate someone else's needs who might, um, you know, not have as many hands as your department does or, mm-hmm. um, and I think that is, that is so important, especially when you're, um, making things on a, on a shoestring, you know, is, about um, just everyone jumping in whenever they can <laughs> to help and to wear just so many hats. And um, and I think the women that I brought with me from Band-Aid onto the craft legacy are such beautiful examples of that because they are just constantly, uh, their, their perspective is so broad. Like they are constantly taking in what anyone else might need at any moment mm-hmm. and, and how they can help those departments with their own. I would like to talk about um, the idea of finding a collaborator to work with who just sees your vision, you know, like can understand what you're saying and translate it to what they have to do on set. Um, Because Alex Juhaz um, is the illustrator of the book for The Babadook. And, um, you know, they were trying out a bunch of Australian illustrators, but they were just like, he's the style that we want. Let's see if he'll do it. And he did. And he agreed. But they ended up having a really wonderful working relationship um, that she was able to kind of uh, speak to him. And he understood exactly her language and could translate it to the page. So she said, quote, six months before we started shooting, we took all the core crew away for the weekend. And I talked about the film and I showed them all the films that inspired me. Then Alex and I got to work on the book pretty quickly after that. I would show Alex my crappy stick figure drawings and try to describe what was in my head. A lot of illustrators do their own thing. But Alex is very original and inventive, and he took directions very well. So what we ended up with was really what was in my head, end quote, which is like, holy shit, exactly what was in your head is translate on, which is just, it's not that easy to kind of explain exactly what you want um, to this technician, to this artist, um, whether it's in props, whether it's in production design, or even uh, cinematography. Uh, And I was hoping that you could kind of talk about that process of learning to talk the language with other people? Well, on Band-Aid, luckily, I found so many collaborators who um, immediately we just had like a, a, a vocabulary that felt very effortless. We had the same um, 
references, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the same aesthetics. And, um, and that's always just so exciting uh, as a filmmaker to find people who not only get your vision, but know how to enhance and uplift it. And, um, and the first time I met with Hilary Spira, who um, shot Band-Aid, she shot a, a pilot that I directed for ABC, and then she, she just shot The Craft Legacy. Um, and she's the only DP I've ever <laughs> worked with as a director because I, I just love working with her. She is, um, she and I don't have to even communicate, you know, at this mm -hmm. point, like we just, she understands what I want and I understand, and I have the trust in her you know, that, that, um, that her intuition is, is my intuition, you know, and it's not that we don't have lots of conversations about visual references and, and, um, and cinematic references and, and, um, camera dynamics, but yeah, there's just such a symbiosis that I think, um, you know, when you find that in a person, there's a reason why people, you know, what, once directors find those people, they continue to, to bring them back on on their future projects and i had the same experience with hillary gertler my production designer who was on band-aid and, and the craft legacy um and and then my producing partner natalia anderson who was on band-aid and uh and the craft legacy too you know she on band-aid because i was also acting in the film as well as writing and directing it um I needed a producer who could be at monitor and who I could just trust implicitly, who, mm -hmm. who I knew would have my back because we, as I mentioned, we shot it in 12 days. So I couldn't be running uh, back to, to do playback really ever. Um, and so, you know, she, Hillary Gertler and Hillary Spear and I like basically like, I've never played sports, but we treated it like a sport where like, we had <laughs> like, like, if I played we sports, had, like, <laughs> we had like these like, Oh, you know, overhead diagrams of, of, um, you know, exactly where the camera would be placed in every single moment of every scene so that I would, there'd be no questions so that I could just be in it and, and working. And, and, you know, the only time that I would have to run back to monitor it is if something, um, felt like it, it wasn't in line with what we had discussed. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it those re relationships are so, so special to me. Um, and and just elevate my work in a way that I'm so grateful for. To to kind of finish up and round things out, um, the fact that both you and Jennifer Kent began as actors uh, and then moved into directing, I think, is um, a nice parallel. Um, the way that Jennifer Kent sees it now is that she does not want to act anymore. She has no desire. She's kind of found her place behind the camera, and she loves kind of telling what people can do and can't do and telling her own stories. And so she doesn't really, you know, she's kind of disavowed that, even though she says that it gives her so much of an advantage when she's working with actors and when she's directing. And for you, it seems like you would like to have a kind of parallel career. Am I right? Yeah, or an intersecting career. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I like to write and direct things that I also act in. So, um, um, I, I love, yeah, I love acting equally. Uh, I think I, it works such different muscles and then some of the same muscles, but, um, but making movies is fucking hard. And, uh, <laughs> and sometimes it's nice to just like show up and say a line. You know I mean? <laughs> You're like, oh, I can just be funny today. People will laugh at what I yeah. say on set. And then there I go back home. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming and talking to us about your film, The Craft Legacy and uh, The Babadook. And people can see your film. Um, uh, I believe they can rent it on October 28th. Um, and so by the time this is out, you guys will be able to watch this movie 
at home with all of your friends and family. Um, yeah. Anything else that you want to plug? What else is happening? <laughs> It's all the craft legacy all the time. So everybody go watch it and then I can make some other things <laughs> if you if you all tune in. All right. Thank you so much, Zoe. Okay. Thank you. So nice talking to you. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you would like to tell us what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and this is a production of MaximumFun.org. If you touch my son again, I'll fucking kill you! MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.